Hey everyone, this is CG Billiot with the Christus Rex Blogcast. Welcome back to another episode. Here you will be listening to the second part of the first episode of our new Hidden Reads uh, series. Reading from the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, Volume 11, Number 2, Symposium on the Education of the Core Group, 1986 to 1987. Specifically, we will be reading from uh, one of the articles titled The Necessity for the Christian School from John M. Otis. Hope you guys enjoy. Please like, comment, share, reach out to us, and uh, we look forward to getting back into this one with you. We left off with the fourth pillar of secular humanism, that is, worldwide socialism, saying, the humanist dislikes free enterprise economics. Humanist Manifesto Number 1 has said, quote, The humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. Humanist Manifesto 2 stated, that it desired a one-world government. It says, quote, We deplore the divisions of humankind on nationalistic grounds. We have reached our turning point in history, where the best option is to transcend the limits of a national sovereignty and move toward the building of a worldwide community in which all sectors of the human family can participate. Now, Otis is writing this to say that these are the folks, the folks who many of whom, anyway, signed these manifestos were the, the founders and fathers of the modern public education system in America and in other Western nations. So continuing on and comparing the worldviews, we move on to section 7 that says, Education, the arena for conflicting worldviews. Education, simply put, is, quote, instruction in life. Education seeks to inform us what the real world is like, what we are like, and how we are to relate to the physical world and to each other. It should be obvious by now that education cannot be neutral. Education is inherently religious. As noted earlier, we cannot interpret the facts of the universe apart from our presuppositions, that is, apart from our worldview. Education has become a major arena of conflict between a Christian and a humanist worldview. The conflict is inevitable. They cannot coexist. To adopt one is to deny the other. America's schools have become that arena of conflict. The great prize is the minds of our children. Which is really interesting, by the way, because the, uh, the CEO of, or perhaps he's, he's like the superintendent, but basically the head honcho of the Association of Classical Christian Schools in America, uh, he just came out with a book in the last two years titled Battle for the American Mind. But at any rate, to win the battle for the mind today is to win the victory for tomorrow's culture. And we've certainly seen that today, haven't we? Both worldviews realize this fact, and the struggle is indeed one to the death. Section A, a Christian worldview in American education, historical roots. C.B. Evie gives an excellent survey of early American education in his work, History of Christian Education. Much of the following information is derived from his survey. 
The Puritans, who were Calvinistic dissenters from the Church of England and who settled in the New England colonies, did more than any other people in setting the course for early American education. The the Puritans recognized the scriptures as their supreme authority, and they structured their whole community around the scriptures. Great emphasis was placed on home education, but as early as 1635, the Puritans began to establish schools for their children. These schools were either in partnership with or subordinate to the local church. Grammar schools were established to prepare young men for entering college. These schools stressed diligent study in the original languages and the reading of works of ancient writers. Teachers were usually college graduates or candidates for the ministry until they obtained churches. Puritan education included emphasis on higher education. Harvard College was founded in 1636 to advance learning to supply churches with ministers and the colony with teachers and civil officials. The college was distinctly Christian in its founding, for every student was to be instructed that the chief purpose in life is to know God reconciled in Jesus Christ. Yale University was begun for the same purpose in 1701. In the middle colonies, parochial schools exerted the greatest influence. Such universities include Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, and Rutgers, all of which began because of a Christian zeal to see Christ as the principal theme of education. In the South, apprenticeship was a very important means of Christian education. Parochial schools were under the control of the Church of England. In 1693, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, was started for the training of ministers and to train youth correctly so that the gospel could be furthered. Evie has said that, quote, Christian, or Christianity was the mother of education in America. Elementary schools were closely associated with churches to the, uh, so that students could read the catechism and the Bible to learn to do God's will. Secondary education in grammar schools was under the direction of Christian auspices. Schoolmasters were obtained in light of Christian character and were required to instruct and lead children to live Christian lives. (laughs) Literally the uh, complete antithesis today, I promise you, like um, having friends that are in the public education system, some of them have have demonstrated to me that they're they're almost explicitly told to keep their faith to themselves. Um, Anyway, moving on. It was the duty of the teacher to pray for his, his uh, students morning and evening. He was to see that they attended church on Sunday and on any other day that worship was conducted. During the colonial period, the book which was most influential next to the Bible was the New England Primer, which served for over a century as the chief school reading book in all colonies except those controlled by the Church of England. Noah Webster's The American Spelling Book which was published in 1783, was another tremendously influential work. Some estimate that it sold, quote, 100 million copies in the first 100 years of its circulation. The McGuffey readers were extremely popular in the first half of the public school uh, system in America. The McGuffey uh, features in Little House on the Prairie, by the way, but anyway. It formed the Bible curriculum of early public schools. One of the giants in terms of propagating Christian education in the late 18th and early 19th century was the aforementioned Noah Webster, who was best known for his American Dictionary. Probably, quote, no single American has contributed so much to the American education system as Noah Webster. Webster put the greatest emphasis on the family for education and upon the individual. Many of his textbooks were self-help books, 
but not in the sense that we would know today. He believed that the English language was to be a means of propagating the science, arts, and Christian faith to an extent exceeding any other language. Webster spent 60 years of his life writing books which presented a Christian worldview of education. One of his crowning achievements was his famous An American Dictionary of the English Language, published in 1828, after some 26 years of work. He had learned 28 different languages for his work on his dictionary. You know, I'm quite curious, like, how, how does that work if it's just one language? Anyway, crazy guy, way smarter than any of us, right? Webster's final achievements or his final achievement was his translation of the Bible from its original languages. Webster saw this as, quote, the most important enterprise of my life. He published an American scriptures for the daily reading of Americans. Webster's letter to a young gentleman commencing his education in 1823 probably reflects a, uh, best a Christian worldview which he sought to expound, as did early American education in general, saying, as men are furnished with the powers of reason, it is obviously the design of a creator. That reason should be employed as their guide in every stage of life. But reason without civilization, without experience, and without the aid of revelation is a miserable guide. It often errs from ignorance and more often from the impulse of passion. The first questions a rational being should ask himself are, who made me? Why was I made? What is my duty? The proper answers to these questions and the practical results constitute, my dear friend, the whole business of life. Now, reason unaided by revelation cannot answer these questions. The experience of the pagan world has long since determined this point. Revelation alone furnishes satisfactory information on these subject, subjects. Let it then be the first study that occupies your mind to learn from the scriptures the character and will of your maker the end or purpose for which he has given you, and your being and intellectual powers, and the duties he requires of you to perform. And all that regards faith and practice, the scriptures furnish the principles, precepts, and rules by which you are to be guided. Your reputation among men, your tranquility of mind and life, and all rational hope of future happiness depend on an exact conformity of conduct to the commands of God revealed in the sacred oracles. No Webster. Section B, Humanism's Role in American Education. The humanist sees the value of education and of the public school and the propagation of humanist beliefs. This quote by John Dunphy from January of 1983 in the issue of The Humanist is quite significant. Quote, I'm convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classrooms by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach. Regardless of the educational level, preschool, daycare, or large state university, the classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with all its adjacent evils and miseries, and the new faith of humanism, resplendent in its promise of a world in which they never realized Christian ideal of, quote, love thy neighbor, will finally be achieved. 
Oof. Now, if you remember from the, uh, I believe it was in the first episode, I had mentioned that uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who is the father of modern-day nihilism, uh, had said he'd, he'd grown up the great-great-grandson of, I mean, his great-grandfather, all his basically all the patriarchs in his family going all the way back to the Reformation were Lutheran preachers, and yet here you have this apostate. But he had mentioned that Sunday after Sunday, they would pray the Lord's Prayer, right? That thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he said, we would pray that every Sunday, knowing good and well, that uh, not only did we not expect that to to really happen, we didn't want it to happen. The difference between most evangelicals today, or in the 80s when this was written, is that, no, again, we pray that, but we don't really expect it to happen, nor really desire it, because then we ourselves would be more submitted to the God that we claim to worship, Whereas the God of the humanist, oh, they'll submit all the day long. And they know that that submission uh, is to be propagated. The difference is, is they want to compel people um, by force to do so. Whereas the kingdom of Christ conquers by conviction, conviction of sin realized by the, the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. So it's these things are forever at odds. And we have to realize like uh, this was really this quote in particular really stood out to me because it was talking about um you know, the school teacher has the classroom, like a minister has a pulpit. Like, that's why you see today, um, sure, we're seeing conservative parents stand up in these school board meetings and they're getting upset about critical race theory or transgender stuff being taught in classrooms. But who is defending the pra- such practices in the public schools? It's the teachers. I've seen a number, even from my home state of Louisiana, um, uh, last year there was a teacher like, going on and on and on day after day after day in school board meetings and other meetings about how like she had the absolute right to withhold information about children to their parents to teach hypersexuality all this and the other and to be fair how the system's built she's exactly right but anyway just want to get a few thoughts out there um i hope that 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 quote from john dunphy was like oh like cold water hitting you but anyway here we go Humanists have long seen the importance of the public school in their goal to, quote, humanize America. In fact, the humanists of the 19th of 19th century America were the ones who championed tax-supported public education. As a matter of historical fact, Unitarianism was the mother of secular humanism in America. It is interesting to note that 25% of the original signers of Humanist Manifesto No. 1 in 1933 were either Unitarian ministers or Unitarians. Samuel Blumenfeld, who we read of last time in the first episode, documents an incredible account of his work in, quote, Is Public Education Necessary? Blumenfeld speaks of Robert Owen, a socialist from Scotland, who came to America in 1825 and started a communal experience in New Harmony, Indiana. Owen taught that education was a prerequisite to the success of what would come to be known as socialism. Now, this is actually uh, absurd if you look into the Owen family. Again, Rob, uh, Robert Owen was doing this um, in the early 19th century when he established New Harmony, like the year he, in which he actually did that. Karl Marx was only seven years old. So so we attribute communism, socialism to Marx, but Owen was doing it way ahead. So it's really scary to recognize that socialism began in this country, not over in Russia. But anyway, fun little fact for you. The Owenites, as they were called, were joined by the transcendentalists, Unitarians, and Universalists. 
their goal? To plot the takeover of public education. Arrestus A. Bronson, 1803-1876, who was a Universalist minister, joined the Owenites in the 1820s and wrote this in his autobiography. The great object was to get rid of Christianity and to convert our churches into halls of science. The plan was not to make open attacks on their religion, although we might belabor the clergy and bring them into contempt when we could, but to establish a system of state. We said national schools from which all religion was to be excluded in which nothing was to be taught but such knowledge as knowledge as the verifiable of excuse me but such knowledge as is ver, verifiable from the senses into which all parents were compelled by law to send their children the first thing to be done was to get rid of this system of schools that were established for this purpose a secret society was formed the, this organization was commenced in 1829 in the city of new york and to my own knowledge, was affected throughout a considerable part of the state of New York. How far it was extended into other states, and whether it is still kept up, I know not, for I know that I abandoned it in the latter part of 1830, and have since no confidential relations with any engaged in it. But this much I can say, the plan has been successfully pursued. The views we put forth have gained great popularity, and the whole action of the country on the subject has taken the direction that we sought to give it. It would be worth inquiring if there were any means of ascertaining how large a share of this infidel society, with its members all throughout the country unsuspected by the public and unknown to each other, yet all known to a central committee, and moved by it, having had in giving the extraordinary impulse to godless education, we all must have remarked since 1830 an impulse which seems too strong for any human power to resist." Oof. Now, actually, this part of this quote, if you've been following the Christmas Rex Instagram page, we qu- we quoted Arrestus Bronson on how, again, these committees, uh, these gatherings, these secret societies were literally thrown together to undermine the existing uh, educational system and uh, expand it to be more encompassing and endorsed by the state and uh, made compulsory by the state in which you have to have your child registered in the state education education system what we don't understand too is for a long time we take this for granted today um in as much as homeschooling is growing and christian education isn't um at least structurally under attack um we we don't understand that for years and years and years after the actual establishment of public education if you wanted to homeschool your child or put them in a private uh, system. There were some areas of the country where you had to have written consent that you were approved by the state to do so. Uh, even all the way up into the 90s, there was there was Christian schools in which, uh, discovered by the state, teachers were arrested and children were taken away from their families. If you don't believe me, you can look it up, but we might actually get to this in the end of this article. But anyway, in the humanist plan to take over public education, these basic steps were undertaken. One, make school attendance compulsory. Two, establish government-sponsored, quote-unquote, free schools. Three, establish teacher training schools controlled, of course, controlled, of course, by an elite where ed- future educators would, uh, educators would be essentially taught how to secularize education. Quote, the year 1837 marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. It was the end of America's total commitment to Christian education. 
and the beginning of a shift to centralized secular public education under government auspices. Horace Mann was one of the dominant forces in this transformation. He became a powerful force for secular education during the 19th century. He is even referred to as the father of public education, shared a title shared only between him and John Dewey. On April 20, 1837, Mann was chosen, or Mann was chosen, as the first secretary of the Massachusetts Board of Education, which was the first state-supported school system financed by property taxes. Again, these, these previously existing uh, Puritan-established, quote-unquote, free schools were usually, again, not made compulsory, not financed by property taxes. They were usually all charitable and financed by a community of their own choosing. But anyway... He was chosen not for his educational expertise, but for his Unitarian skepticism. Mann had numerous friends in Boston, quote, friends of education, a group of a group consisting of socialists, Unitarians, atheists, educators, and all who favored a tax-supported government-controlled system who pushed for his selection. Mann was a starch rival of tradition, traditional Christian beliefs. Under his control, the Massachusetts Board of Education pushed for compulsory attendance in established public school libraries stacked with, quote, approved writers, namely Unitarians, Transcendentalists, Atheists, etc. He excluded what he would call, quote, sectarian books. Later, Mann became the first secretary of the Federal Department of Education, which, by the way, quick note, never stipulated by the Constitution, but none of us ever, you know, blink an eye at that. But anyway, what did what he did for Massachusetts in education, he sought to do for all America. Several results were one, education was made compulsory and public. Two, state teachers colleges were established where teachers were trained in the new non-sectarian philosophy of education, aka humanism. And three, control of schools was taken from parents in the local community and given to the quote state meaning humanist educators were hired by the state to train our children. John Dewey, who was called the father of progressive education, was one of the most influential humanists of the 20th century. Dewey became the head of the Department of Education at Columbia University in New York. His so-called, quote, progressive education became the model for teacher education departments at universities across the U.S. Dewey was a professed atheist, and his progressive education was in reality nothing more than the propagation of his atheism, evolutionary thought, autonomous ethics, and socialism upon this century's school children. Dewey, as mentioned previously, was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto of 1933. The humanists plotted the takeover of American education for all practical purposes, uh, and for all practical purposes have succeeded in winning the battle for the public school for a time. The fact that our public schools cannot openly advocate or teach a Christian worldview, but are allowed to propagate what is in reality a humanist philosophy, simply shows who has won the battle for the minds of our youth in America's public schools. The victory has been achieved because our government bureaucrats, our, con con our congressional lawmakers, and the Supreme Court have brainwashed us to think of religion only on a narrow or sectarian grounds. For them, Christianity is obviously a sectarian faith, and to only propagate this faith violates the Constitution's supposed separation of church and state. Of course, this separation, as put forth by humanists, is not in our Constitution. But the beliefs of humanism, such as evolution, are seen not as a religious faith even through the Supreme Court in 1961 Torquesal versus Watson case called Secular Humanism a Religion.
Our government sees its public schools as neutral with regards to religion. As we have seen earlier, this is impossible. Nevertheless, the government still believes it, which thereby has tremendous implications, such as the disestablishment of Christianity from public education. Part 8. What constitutes a genuine Christian school? A genuine Christian school will, one, recognize that the Bible is God's inerrant and infallible rule for faith and practice. The Bible is the source book for all of life. Though it is not a textbook on academic areas, it does provide the basis for such pursuits, and when it does speak to these areas, it speaks authoritatively and without error. The scripture is the guiding principle for the entire educational process. 1 Timothy 3.16 and 17. 2. Recognize that the overarching goal for education, as in all of life, is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. 3. Recognize that Jesus Christ is preeminent in the realm of education. No knowledge can be accurately understood apart from him. Colossians 1, 17, 2, verses 2 and 3, Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. 4. Seek to provide a harmonious continuity with godly parents' instruction. The Christian school is an extension of the Christian home. The school's only authority is a derivative one, which the parent gives it. Education ultimately is the parent's responsibility. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The school stands in loco parentis with respect to the child and places the parent for a specific period of time. 5. Provide a discipline which will make the school a, conduct, a conducive atmosphere for proper education. This discipline is consistent with the godly parent's discipline at home, which is rooted in Scripture. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Deuteronomy 8.5, Proverbs 3.11 and 12. 6. Recognize that the child is a unique creature of God, created in his image. And particularly for Christian households, your children are members of the covenant by birth. The child is not to be manipulated. The child is not a blank slate to be written upon according to the whims of an educator. The child is to be guided to the paths of righteousness, Proverbs chapter 2, respecting his or her individuality as a unique creature of God. 7. Recognize the, uni the uniqueness of the child in his or her possession of talents. The school seeks to promote the maturing of those God-given talents for his glory. 8. Recognize the sinful nature of the child. Psalms 51.5, Ephesians 2, 1-3. And will seek to teach that child God's remedy for the consequences of that sinful nature. John 3.16. And will seek to guide him or her and how to overcome this nature's effect through the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.28, Galatians 5.16, 25.26, Romans 13.14. Though the Christian school's primary function is not that of evangelism, it should always be sensitive to the spiritual status of the child and aid in the propagation of the gospel to that child. The school realizes this is primarily a function of the home and church, but it cannot neglect it. And of course, the school teacher and other personnel must help the child in learning a biblical response to everyday problems. The school aids in character building. Nine, hire teachers who are committed to the task of yielding to God his rightful place in their preparation, instruction, and in the example of their lives. The Christian teacher is the backbone of the school for he or she is a potent, a potent role for an impressionable child. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17. The teacher is standing in place of godly parents during school hours. 10. Provide a curriculum that is Christ-centered in its orientation. Matthew 12, 30, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, 2, 2 and 3. The curriculum is shaped by God's word. Only a Christ-centered curriculum is capable of providing a truly integrated curriculum where all the diverse areas of knowledge find their unity in Jesus Christ. The curriculum should reflect both unity and diversity. Each course is a distinct area of instruction, yet each essentially is interrelated with every other course. Quote, God's word either directs, controls, and determines the whole curriculum or has no rightful place in it. The only way to truly honor God's word is to give the Bible the central place in your child's education that it assigns itself. 11. Provide a faculty that is able to translate a Christian philosophy of education into everyday classroom practice. The teacher seeks to integrate the Christian faith into the subject matter. The Christian teacher realizes that religion cannot be compartmentalized. The Christian faith has a bearing on all of life. And lastly, 12 enable the student to carry out his or her scriptural mandate to subdue the world for God's glory by properly utilizing biblical principles in his or her vocation. Genesis 1, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The child learns that there is a Christian perspective to science, math, history, grammar, physical education, sociology, psychology, music, art, etc. Now, side note before the next section, Usually a common objection you hear from critics with respect to Christian education is one, uh, you know, Christian schools aren't even that good. Like they're either uh, like they're barely Christian or the scores aren't that great. Well, one, statistically speaking, Christian schools, particularly uh, ACCS schools, Association of Classical Christian Schools, uh, outperform public ed schools year after year after year. And it's not even close. But with respect to socialization culture, I can attest to the fact I went to a, uh, a, a private Christian school. It was not an ACCS school, but I went to a private Christian school for a year growing up. And yeah, it actually was really bad. And be, but here's the thing. It's all with respect to one, how firmly is an institution really and truly rooted in Christ? And two, what is the nature of the curriculum? Because there's plenty of Christian schools, to the critic's point, that the only thing that makes them Christian is the fact that they have chapel once a week, right? And that's the kind that I had gone to. But we didn't, we, we were not catechized. We were never even told that that was a thing. Uh, we were not discipled. The, there was no teaching through scripture, uh, history of scripture, how to study scripture, any of those things. Whereas more intensive Christian schools will in fact do that. So that needs to be uh, instructional, not just for the Christian school, but for the Christian homeschool uh, and Lord willing, eventually even the public ones. But the point is, um, these things too are not just again compartmentalized true christian education finds christ hiding in algebra finds christ and reveals him through biology and through all of these uh all of these disciplines the the myth is that we can only have a christian school if again we're only seeing these things in literature and comparing them no like having friends that have gone through far better curriculum than i ever went through uh, they could testify to the fact that they had teachers, they had educators, they had administrations who were uh, committed to revealing Christ in all these disciplines in life. For what? To what end? And here's a huge difference between secular humanist public education versus Christian education is what is the telos? What is the end, desired end state? What's the purpose? 
Um, what we have seen through the public education movement establishment from K through 12 into college is the entire thing is oriented in such a way as to produce a worker, a really a controllable proletariat to use their own words. How do we know this? We know this because you testify to your own experience. As soon as you got to high school, you were now made to be tunnel vision towards got to make sure that you're suitable to get in college. Why? Because then when you get to college, you're going to be suited around one discipline. Why? So that when you graduate, you now have the magic wand, the magic certificate called a degree to get you the job that you need into the marketplace. So really the entire thing from freshman year of high school till senior year of college and graduation is oriented about placing you into the market with essentially the same skills or the lack thereof as all of your peers. The only thing that's going to set you apart is your perceived IQ. But it really doesn't matter because how many of us were sold that lie, get all the way through college with a massive amount of debt, and there was not this promised job that you were told about, right? So whereas, uh, so in other words, you were not taught how to think, you were told what to think. Whereas Christian education does the opposite. Christian education properly performed teaches individuals how to think with a variety of skills so that they are not limited or constrained by one quote unquote career. Uh, you know, in, in which so many of us uh, not re- not being able to receive that career upon uh, graduation, then work tons of odd jobs until those doors open, or we go through another life crisis to change it. The properly educated Christian student could find themselves just as easily at a Fortune 500 company or a small local business uh, because they're armed with a robust education uh, and also told that part of like the main thrust of this telos, this end state, is that all things that you do are for the glory of God, that a Christian man can be just as content to work at a 7-Eleven as he is with Google, right? Um, whereas those, that, that um, purpose, that meaning is not to be found in the education system that exists for the public today, uh, in which you've got to really what it comes down to is are you going to be the kind of worker that we need for the market to pay taxes um that's what it comes down to but anyway just a few thoughts to throw in there section nine why some christian parents don't send their children to a christian school one they don't have a christian worldview themselves they are ignorant of what one is and the necessity for imparting it to their child low-key that is uh is very true in the (laughs) the folks that i've uh interacted with but number two they are ignorant of the philosophy that has captured public education namely humanism they do not realize its detrimental effects upon their children three they have been brainwashed by a humanist culture that education can be neutral and that this neutrality necessitates the elimination of a christian belief from the classroom for the sake of that neutrality in a pluralistic society a few thoughts here uh, recommend reading Political Polytheism by Gary North, in which he's essentially articulating that today's plurality, pluralism, is just political polytheism in which the citizen has a whole host of their own gods that they bow the knee to. Secondly, uh, Rush Dooney has a very long volume titled Sovereignty, which he covers a plethora of topics. But one of the articles, um, which I think I've cited before, one of my posts on uh, Christus Rex, uh, he's speaking that with respect to the second commandment, thou shall have no graven images before me. The command goes on to say, you shall not serve them, which is to say that we as uh, believers of Christ, we as servants adopted children to Yahweh, the triune God. We are to not serve these idols, these false gods. Um, 
And one of the things that really, I guess, opened my eyes to how I, I had been doing that, participating in that in everyday life, was once you see uh, why the state desires to have a compulsory education system, and you study the history of these things, you realize, oh my goodness, this, this is no kidding. Um, this is Caesar deifying himself. Uh, in which we all have to pay tribute. We all have to participate. We all have to, and we're not allowed to question it. And, and more times than not, because uh, let me get, let me be clear. When I was coming across these Christians who insisted upon Christian education, I myself was also hesitant and cautious and skeptical. But it's because as this third point articulated, quote, they have been brainwashed by a humanist culture. I didn't realize that that had been me too, that we had really, we, we as American Christians in particular are very statist without even recognizing it. But anyway, four, they believe it costs too much. What price tag, however, would a parent place upon the spiritual welfare of their child? And besides, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Where, where there is the commitment to educate a child in the truth, there will come the sacrifice if necessary to meet the need. So true. Again, one, statistically not true. Uh, public education costs more per, to educate, uh, costs more to educate per student than uh, any other private options or homeschool options. The difference is, is the myth of, well, I'm not paying for it. Well, congratulations. You are unjustly demanding it upon your local community. Two, uh, if we are convinced that this is not a preference issue, it's an obedience issue, then our obedience to God has to come first. Three, as the author articulates here, uh, no, if you're, if you're committed to the spiritual welfare, think about it this way. If the numbers show, and they do, that your child has a, a far more likely chance of maintaining and persevering in their faith through one option or another, wouldn't you choose that option? And time and time again, you look this up through the uh, National Home Education Research Institute, NARI, uh, that homeschooled children or otherwise Christian educated children remain in the faith of their fathers up to 95% of the time. You don't even need me to cite the public education <laughs> number on that. It's far less, and you know it, I know it, we all know it, but for whatever reason, I want that to really set in your heart for a second, particularly if you're a skeptic. Again, like, think about it in a, if it was a different situation. If, if, my, if my kid was standing at a fork in the road, and I knew that, but I wasn't allowed to interfere for whatever, for whatever reason, I know that if they go left, they're, uh, they're only going to have, you know, three inches of road from a cliff. Maybe they can make it, but that's, I mean, three inches from a cliff, that's pretty tough. Whereas on the other side, you've got a mile's width before another cliff. Which path am I going to send them down? Which path is going to uh, have the most likelihood to see them survive? That, that's really how serious this is. We're talking about the spiritual welfare, the, uh, nay, the eternity of uh, how our children will spend their eternity. Uh, and on top of all that, again, whether or not we're obeying God. So just, anyway, scattered thoughts there. Moving on. Five, they believe that a Christian public school teacher is sufficient to satisfy any parental obligation to educate a child in a Christian way. The problem with this mentality is that it fails to see that a Christian teacher without a godly curriculum, without a godly atmosphere, and without the complete freedom to integrate the Christian faith into the subject matter on a daily basis is seriously handicapped from the perspective of a biblical worldview of education. Any attempt to teach in a distinctly Christian way is to, inv is to invite likely reprimand from a school administrator for violating, quote unquote, so-called separation of church and state. 
Of course, all of this assumes the Christian teacher desires and is capable of teaching in a genuinely Christian way. This assumption is highly questionable, seeing that most Christian teachers probably have not been adequately trained to teach from a thoroughly Christian perspective. Therefore, Christian parents should seriously question whether their child is receiving a biblical worldview, even from a, quote, Christian teacher in a public school. A lot of thoughts here. So one, and this is a point I'll give to the critics because I've seen it myself, and this is more a challenge on all Christian households, regardless of the education option that, that they choose. Parents... I mean, obviously, if you're homeschooling, you're doing this every day. Uh, but public or private school option, you still have a responsibility to disciple your child. I have met families who, sure, they send their kid to an ACCS school or another classical Christian school of some variety. But clearly, like, there's no actual discipleship happening at the home. You have to have both, which is, I mean, I'm not, I don't know if I'm a proponent for homeschool as much compared to ACCS. But I will say that like with homeschooling, you're directly doing that. So, uh, you know, shout out to them. But the parents, you are still the primary. Uh, remember, you are still the primary authority for education. You need to see your children educated and discipled hand in hand because education is discipleship and you're not holding up your end of the bargain just because you saw Johnny get arithmetic for the day. You still need to catechize and disciple your children. Anyway, second point in line with this fifth point, um, is that I've, yes, I've run into this object, uh, this objection on a number of occasions of, oh, well, you know, my friend is a Christian and they're a public school teacher or, uh, you know, my, my grandpa or my uncle and my aunt. And, and, but here's the thing, exactly as the authors articulating is you're talking about, um, you know, a needle in a haystack that's not allowed to move, not allowed to move about freely. That is, uh, you know, you're talking about someone who the, the entire system is against them. And you're also talking about a very, very rare kind because of the because even amongst the self-professing Christian public school educators, only a very few of them would actually be willing uh, and be equipped to thoroughly integrate the Christian worldview into various disciplines of education. A majority of them would uh, again either probably not see the problem or not know how they could they be, they could begin to do so. So these are just again these are really uh, astute observations I'd give to the author with respect to why parents don't send their children. So just some thoughts. Point six, they think the Christian school is a sub-quality education. They simply don't know the facts. The great majority of Christian schools test out better than public school counterparts, generally speaking. A genuine Christian school will always demand quality education of its personnel simply because the pursuit of excellence is a hallmark of Christianity. Ephesians 6, 7, Colossians 3, 23. Of course, Quality education must never be restricted to mere academics. Seven. Well, before getting on to that, of course, we've belabored that point enough. If you want more statistics on that, on the perform the academic performances of the various educational options, please reach out. I would love to show them to you. Anyway, point seven. They think their child can be a positive influence in salvaging a decaying public school. These parents see their child as an evangelist. Usually the argument goes, if all Christians pull out their public school, pull out their kids from public school, then it'll really fall apart. First of all, the school is not primarily a place for evangelism. That is a mission field. The child is not, to send, is not sent to school to be a missionary. He should be sent to learn how to think and act in a God-glorifying way. In all seriousness, would a Christian parent under other circumstances, other circumstances send a five- or six-year-old child missionary to a group of unbelievers? 
Besides, what young child clearly knows the gospel and has the initiative and courage to share it? Secondly, with regard to the idea of staying in the school for a type of preserving the system is, in reality, contrary to scriptural, te- te- scriptural teaching. Psalm 1, Proverbs thirteen twenty. We are never to violate a clear mandate of scripture, supposedly, in order to be a benefit to someone. And besides, how is a mere presence of, of body going to change a system thoroughly entrenched in humanism? 8. They claim there is no Christian school in the nearby community. This never relinquishes a, a, a Christian parent's obligation to educate a child in the truth. The parent either teaches the child at home or helps start a Christian school along with other Christian parents. 9. They say, quote, If the public school was good enough for me, then it's good enough for my children. And besides, the public school didn't hurt me. First of all, the public school of 20 years ago is more than likely not the same as it is today. And remember, this is being written in the 80s. But this isn't the real issue anyhow. The point is, does the Bible mandate Christian parents to educate their children in the truth or not? Besides, how does one define, quote, hurt? The fact that the parent doesn't see the value of distinctly Christian education and the consequences of humanistic education is itself a sign of damage. And this is where I'm going to be completely real with you guys. Um, I've Again, I've, I've had friends who have, have thrown that up, right? Like, well, I turned out all right, or my parents turned out all right, or my siblings turned out all right. And it's like, but did we though? Because like myself, my wife, a number of my friends, we can all testify to the fact that like, we messed up. We got to college. We partied. We did all the things that we didn't do in high school when we were quote unquote sheltered. Um, because it, it's almost like it all culminates in that, right? Isn't that what everyone does? Isn't that what the public education system leads you to and through, um, and expects of you? And how are we going to sit on our high and mighty horse saying that we turned out all right when here we were, uh, at the end of our public education experience, divulging in all the sins that we were taught not to partake in, right? But everyone else was, and and we were certainly encouraged to by necessity of the system. So it's one of those things where, no, like, just look at the numbers, look at the numbers of our generation of, again, the number of folks walking away from the faith and congratulations. Like if I, for example, like in my peer group, I'm pretty sure that it was something like, like, so I entered college in uh, 2018. I'm pretty sure the numbers at that point were saying that like 60% of Christian children going to colleges were falling away from the faith and cool, you know, really nice on me and my self-righteousness to go, Oh, well, I made it. Well, congratulations. More than half of my peers didn't. So it's like one of those things where, again, even with, with, uh, with regard to whether or not this is a biblical command from God, which we have to ask, are we going to obey it? Or are we going to disobey it? We're also still talking about the spiritual welfare and the eternal security of people's And I don't want, those are not, (laughs) when the odds are that high, you don't want to leave those odds to chance, right? And we, that's why God has designed these things this way, that if we trust him, he will bless it. But anyway, 10, they want the school to have a complete athletic program. (laughs) No one's so silly to me. And because again, we're talking about salvation of souls and this is what comes up anyway so many cannot comprehend a high school without a full-fledged athletic program the real question is what is more important my my child's academic education or his opportunity to play a sport and i would then go on say again spiritual health but 11 
They think of a Christian school as a kind of reform school for social misfits or as a place for those with learning disabilities. This simply shows a complete ignorance of what a Christian school is. 12. They contend that the Christian school shelters their, ch their children from experiencing the realities of life, such as living in a sinful world. First of all, the Christian school is not free from sin by any stretch of the imagination. A Christian school doesn't totally eliminate sin, per se. It merely teaches the child how to biblically deal with his or her sin. Nevertheless, in another sense, the Christian school should be a shelter from blatant manifestation of man's sinfulness. The Christian school would never tolerate drug use, pornographic literature to be read, profane language, disrespect for authority on the part of the students, and, and more. Again, this was written in the 80s. They would, they would be beside themselves as they saw what we're dealing with today. The Christian school should be characterized by a godly atmosphere, both on the part of the faculty and the students. Perhaps an analogy would help us. A knowledgeable and caring gardener would never put a tender plant in an environment that would be extremely harsh to it. A young plant needs to have a very suitable climate and soil for it to grow properly. With such careful nurturing over an extended period of time, the plant is far more capable of withstanding the harsh winds, rains, and scorching sun, which of course will happen in their own times. Likewise, a caring and knowledgeable educator would insist upon an atmosphere conducive to the disciplining of that child to the glory of God. To reiterate, such a godly atmosphere would consist of a godly curriculum, a godly faculty, and personnel, and a godly approach to dealing with sin in the world. Contrary to the contention as stated above, the child educated in a Christian school will be better able to live in the community at large full of its sinful influences. The child knows how to deal with his own sin and how to deal biblically with the sins of others. The scripture demands that we be careful of our own associations. We are told not to walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. Psalm 1, 1. We are to walk with the wise men and not fools, Proverbs 13, 20. We are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. I'm glad he's harping on this point because it's something that I actually haven't thought too much about, uh, but it's more than true. I mean, First John uh, 2, 15, right? Like if someone uh, loves the world and the things of the world, then the love of the Father is not in them. Um, he wasn't exaggerating and it's so true and, and a lot of times I think we don't recognize it and I'm, I know that I've been guilty of this historically when our first defense is oh well we don't want to over shelter our children if we meant that we didn't want them to not recognize how sinful the world is then the author is right no we that you can only recognize sin for what it is in light of the word of God. Otherwise, our, our flesh and our, our, our own wicked nature will just condone all things that are done. So in other words, being in a Christian atmosphere will actually teach you that which is inherently sinful about the world. What we really mean, what the American evangelical means when they say we don't want to overshelter our children is... We, we want them to compromise just as much as we did. That's honestly what it means. We want them to be exposed to the same things that we were exposed to with the boundaries that we think we're setting. But again, it's not really in your hands. When you give your child over to the state, the state gets to decide what those boundaries are. Um, and it's one of those things when, when certain things, when they're exposed to certain things, you don't go back from that. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's just an argument that doesn't actually 
work and it really shows because again if that's what we mean if that's what evangelicals have been saying for the last 30 years uh in light of this journal then like look how far that's got us of oh i don't want my kid to be too sheltered well congratulations now now it's not really that i think actually people are more accurate i've heard some people say well i don't want my kid to be weird it's like okay if (laughs) well one scripture calls us to be distinct uh and we will be not only uh, disrespected by the world, will be hated by the world, uh, by the world said Christ, right? Uh, but even more than that, if you think that, like, again, wanting your kid to fit in with these kids today who are, you know, at you know, 13, dyeing their hair purple and uh, sneaking off into the bathroom to vape and confused about their gender, right? Like, if that's what you want them to fit in with, then be my guest. But that shouldn't be what Christendom in America should desire for its children. But anyway, section 10, future implications. There are tremendous future implications regarding our present educational structure in America. It should be obvious that the kind of culture we experience in generations to come largely depends upon the kind of education our children are presently receiving. The battle for tomorrow, indeed, is won in today's classroom. Each person must seriously ask himself, What kind of people are we producing in our educational process? The philosophical basis for education does shape the end result of the educational process. It always has and always will. Therefore, the overriding question we must ask is this. What is the final product of humanistic education as opposed to Christian education? Real quick, I'll sneak in here too. I saw a video of a pastor who was speaking at a school board meeting in Atlanta in which he was saying, and here's an African-American pastor, and he's saying that all of this push for diversity, inclusion, sexuality, whatever, he's like, it's still not getting our kids anywhere, which at the very, even if with the most rationalistic presuppositions, if education is supposed to genuinely educate, then we're not doing that. He pulled up the numbers from the previous year in which 70 per six, uh, 76%, excuse me, right? 76% of African-American children in Atlanta by the third grade were deficient in (laughs) reading, writing, uh, and arithmetic. That's a horrifying statistic. Like what, again, if uh, clearly our quote unquote education system is not educating, but just a quick little plug there. Uh, I thought that that was a really, really great uh, point of him to, uh, great point for him to, to bring up that all these, these political and social agendas are, if nothing else, not only are they demonic and contrary to scripture, but even if you're an unbeliever, you can see that they are, they are a distraction from genuine education. But anyway, section A, humanism's final product. Humanism is a self-defeating system. The declining status of American public education is the direct result of the logical consequences of humanism. Modern educations are bewil- modern educators are bewildered with the continuing decline of public education. Our recent task force, the National Commission of Excellence in Public Education, submitted its findings to President Reagan on April 22nd or April 26, 1983. The commission said, quote, the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our future as a nation and as a people. The commission went on to say, second day school curricula has been diluted and diffused to such an extent that they no longer have a central purpose. It found that 23 million adults are functionally illiterate, 13% of all teachers likewise. And there has been a steady decline in SAT scores from 1963 to 1980. And again, 
Um, as I re, I think I mentioned it in the first episode, 2022 showed that amongst all, this is from the National Center of Education Statistics, that amongst all American adults, one in five are functionally illiterate. And uh, those scores have continued to decline, as you'd imagine. What were its recommendations? One, triple the requirements for high school graduation in math, science, and English. Also, require a half a year in computer science. Two, require at least one foreign language for graduation. Three, demand that colleges raise their entrance exams. Four, either make the school day more effective, have, a longer, have longer hours, or a longer school year. More homework be assigned. Demand higher standards for teachers. And seven, increase the teacher's salary and give them an 11-month contract. How sad is it that secular educators cannot see the truth? All of the commission's solutions are only band-aids or treatments of symptoms only. The real problem is a cancerous philosophical basis undergirding public education, which is killing it. Humanism is destined to fail simply because it is a false system. And given enough time, such a system will break down into chaos. I think we're certainly seeing that today, right? Again, it's just a wild to me that they were already writing this in the 80s. Humanism fails because it has an incorrect view of the universe, of man, and how man relates to the universe and to other beings. If a system is contrary to reality, it simply cannot survive. As one pastor has put it, stupidity has an, an expiration date. It would be like trying to fuel one's automobile with water rather than gasoline. It will not work because the car is made to run on gasoline, not water. If Christianity is true, which it is, then man is not a product of pure chance. He is not basically good. He cannot solve his problems independently of a creator, and he is not morally, morally free to do what he pleases. God made man to think and act in a particular fashion. Any digression from this created design is futile. No wonder our children, especially children from Christian homes, are often confused in public education. The child hears one thing at home and at church and another at the public school. Uh, speaking from personal experience, this usually happens around fifth or sixth grade, the first time you're experienced to biology and uh, evolution. It's a big crisis of faith for many of us. Moreover, humanism cannot give accurate answers to several questions every young person needs to know. Who am I? Why am I here on earth? What is the product of humanistic schooling? It is a student who is often disillusioned, possessing a fragmented view of reality based on a lie. In light of this fact, the future isn't so rosy. The crisis in public education is but a microcosm of an ailing culture. Without a doubt, humanism has been the greatest influence in transforming American culture within the, the past 50 years. Our moral, decadent, permissive, and lawless society is but the logical consequence of a humanistic worldview. If one tells a man that he is but an animal, who is essentially worthless, that he is not accountable to a supreme god, and that, morally speaking, he can do practically anything he wants, then it is not surprising he begins to act like an animal, treating others essentially as worthless. It is no surprise that respect for authority is at a low ebb. It is no surprise that one in two marriages end in divorce. It is no surprise human life is devalued to the extent that millions of innocent children are brutally murdered by the abortion each year. Humanism has succeeded in creating a self-centered, monstrous society.
no kidding, in this past week, uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin released a debate that he did with a humanist where he gets the humanist to confess in front of this audience, and of course it's being recorded, that under the humanistic worldview, rape, uh, murder, mass murder, uh, these things are not inherently wrong. They are merely culturally wrong. It was a it was a big mic drop moment, like because because he just kind of said it in passing, and then the pastor like pressed him on. It's like, are you you're saying that these things are not in and of themselves wrong? The rape of children, the slaughter of innocent people, and he was saying they're wrong. They're just not inherently wrong. They're culturally wrong. It's just crazy conversation. But that's the that's the truth of the humanistic worldview. Section B, Christianity's final product, and we're coming up on the end here, folks. I know it's been a long. Uh, recording. Whereas humanism is a self-defeating system leading to meaninglessness and great atrocities, Christianity is a system leading to meaningfulness and order. It will succeed because Christianity is a worldview rooted in truth, that is, in an accurate understanding of the world, of man, and man's relationship to his God and to one another. Truth will always prevail in the final analysis because the all-sovereign God who controls human destiny is a God of truth. A Christian worldview correctly answers the student's questions of, who am I and what is my purpose in life? I am a creature of the triune God, created in his image and accountable to him. I am here on earth to bring glory to my creator and, in doing so, I will experience the fullness of life because I am functioning in accord with my creator's design. For those who are willing to look objectively at history, it is inescapable. It is an inescapable conclusion that Christianity has been the guiding agent in the development of Western civilization. Robert Oppenheimer and Alfred North Whitehead both stress that modern science is heavily indebted to a Christian worldview. Whitehead said that because of God's rationality, early scientists had an in, inexpungible belief that every detailed occurrence could be correlated with its antecedents in a perfectly definitive manner, exemplifying general principles. Without this belief, the incredible labors of scientists would be without hope. This is readily seen in such Christian scientists as Francis Bacon, Johannes Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, Sir Isaac Newton, the discoverer of gravity and inventor of calculus, Blaise Pascal, the inventor of the barometer, Michael Faraday, the inventor of the electric transformer, motor, and generator, James Clark Maxwell, a physicist who extended Faraday's research in magnetic fields and electricity, who also was a contemporary of Charles Darwin and opposed Darwin's theory, all of these men operated and thought from a Christian worldview. So yeah, that's the thing is like you can go through the the, the history of modern science and, uh, what, and not just science, engineering and other disciplines, and you'll come to find that a number of these individuals um, were they were they received a Christian education, which is crazy. Um, but again, even if they didn't, the scientific method, as it has been known, was created by Christians. We cannot do science, so to speak, without the foundations of Christian philosophy and thought. Um, <clears throat> so, like one of the one of the most confusing things that throw people all the time, with respect to, I'm a post millennial, so I believe that. Uh, the gospel is going to succeed in discipling the nations before the return of Christ, and that will be accompanied with all kinds of material blessings onto the world itself. And one time I was arguing with a premillennial, and I really threw him off because I was like, but you have an iPhone, right? And he was like, what? I was like, you have an iPhone, right? 
He's like, what does that have to do with anything? I was like, well, they didn't have those like 300 years ago, right? He was like, yeah. I was like, but now, because of the Christian worldview at work in the world, one scientist did this, one engineer did that, and bada bing, bada boom, you've got more computing power in your pocket than Apollo 11 had, right? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. I was like, so that's, that's fruit of the gospel in the world in real time. And that technology, this iPhone, can allow you to send the gospel to the other side of the world in an instant, right? He was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, so um, despite our own sinfulness through the centuries now, you have this fruit in your pocket, right? He was like, it's literally, you know, Apple. That was kind of the joke. I don't know if he got it. Uh, he was like, yeah, I guess so. I was like, so why would any of that discontinue? Why would God not, you know, why would the Holy Spirit not continue to dominate the world uh, even in light of our own sinfulness? And he was like, well, wah, 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 wah. but anyway, just some, just some thoughts right there. Can one begin to imagine the impact on a future culture of a generation which is trained to think and act biblically in all areas of life? The child that is taught in a genuinely Christian way is taught to view all things through the spectacles of Scripture. The student is taught to do all things to the glory of God. In every area of human endeavor, he is to seek, reclaim, and restore a creation that is marred by sin. The student knows the difference between worldly wisdom, humanism, and godly wisdom wherever he meets it in the world, whether it be on TV, in movies, in books, etc. The student learns that he is gifted with talents endowed by his creator, and he is helped to discover these areas and nurture them in order that one day he will utilize them in his task of exercising dominion over all creation. The student learns how to deal with problems from a biblical perspective and live in peace with others. Hence, the goal and hopeful product of genuinely Christian education is a person who is in his dominion task that gives evidence of God's values, namely by bringing captive all thoughts to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, and by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in all endeavors, Galatians 5, 24-26. There is no doubt that today's generation, which is taught from a Christian perspective, can transform tomorrow's culture. After all, the blessing and power of God will be behind it. This generation could carry out the Great Commission of Matthew 18 or Matthew 28, 19-20 in an unprecedented way. This generation could be a great factor in spreading of the knowledge of the Lord all over the, the earth as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2, 14. It could be the generation that reclaims the waste, the waste places lost to humanism. It could be the generation that sends humanism reeling in defeat on all sides. To think any less lofty thoughts is to fail to see the grandeur of our own Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Through him, all things are indeed possible. To think any less lofty, thought, lofty thoughts is to fail to see the truth of Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the onslaught of Christ's church. They will crumble, for the faithful church will march on from victory to victory. The Christian school can be that agent of, cha agent of change. Nay, and must be that agent of change, and God's power will do it. Section 11, Concluding Remarks One of the greatest problems today within the Christian community is the mistaken notion that life can be compartmentalized. Such thinking, uh, such thinking views church attendance as a Christian training and public, public education as training in another area of life, as if the two are not related. Our children, for about three hours a week, are being trained to think as a Christian at church while they spend about 30 hours being trained to think as humanists in the public school. 
One of the greatest hoaxes being perpetrated upon the Christian sector is that education is neutral. Gordon Clark states the fallacy of such thinking, saying, Obviously, the schools are not Christian. Just as obviously, they are not neutral. The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the chief part of knowledge, but the schools, by omitting all reference to God, give the pulpits the notion that knowledge can be had apart from God. They teach, in effect, that God has no control in history, that there is no plan of events that God is working out, that God does not foreordain whatsoever comes to pass. The public schools are not, never were, and can never be neutral. Neutrality is impossible. Let one ask what neutrality can possibly mean when God is involved. How does God judge the school system which says to him, quote, O God, we neither deny nor assort, assert thy existence, and O God, we neither obey nor disobey thy commandments. We are strictly neutral. A school system which ignores God's teach, teaches, which ignores God, teaches its pupils to ignore God, and that this is, uh, and this is not neutrality, but the worst form of antagonism, for it judges God to be unimportant and irrelevant to human affairs. It is atheism. A Christian worldview and a humanist worldview are diametrically opposed. Their conflict with each other is inevitable. One either thinks and acts as a Christian or one thinks and acts as a humanist. There is no neutral stand. Our children are being educated all the time. The question is, what religion or worldview is being conveyed to them and being used to shape their lives? Is it the godless system of humanism? Or is it the God-glorifying truths of Scripture? The choice lies with the Christian parent as to which system will educate his child. As, Christians, as Christian parents, we need to have a genuine Christian worldview which directs our whole approach to life. Our task as educators is to guide our children in their development of a Christian worldview. The godly parent sees the Christian school as an indispensable tool in achieving his goal. The Christian school exists because the Bible mandates that the Christian parent must educate his children and the only truth, that is, Christianity. For a Christian parent to think of education as a neutral endeavor is an outright denial of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 17, 2, verse 2 and 3. And it is high time that Christian parents be exhorted to recognize Christ's Lordship in the realm of education and act accordingly with respect to their child's education. This alone constitutes the necessity of the Christian school. Well, there you have it, folks. I've said too much. That, that was a long read. Hope you enjoyed. Again, that was from the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, Volume 11, Number 2, 1986, John M. Otis, The Necessity for the Christian School. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, criticisms, reach out to us via the Instagram page at rex.christus underscore or through the blog, which is www.repentforchristendom.org. But it's technology. You guys can figure out how to get to us if you would like to do so. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, gracious. I'm, I don't know about you guys. I'm kind of toast. My brain is kind of <laughs> kind of cooked on that one. But no, nonetheless, God bless you guys. Sin is dead. Death is next. And Ave Christus Rex. The Calcedon Foundation is a Christian education organization devoted to the research, publishing, and promotion of Christian reconstruction. 
We believe that the Christian faith is applicable to every area of life and thought, and that all things are to be, quote, reconstructed according to God's revealed will and scripture. Founded in 1965 by R.J. Rushduni, the Chalcedon Foundation, a nonprofit named after the Great Ecclesiastical Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, which defined Jesus Christ as both truly God and truly man, recognizes this crucial definition as the mystery of Christ's incarnation as the limiting factor to all human authorities and institutions. In Matthew 28:18, the resurrected Christ declared, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth, which means no person or human institution can claim ultimate authority in history. With recognizing Christ as Lord in history, the Chalcedon Foundation teaches that the first and most basic government is self-government, but it is self-government in terms of God's revealed will, which is contained in his written laws within both the Old and New Testaments. Salvation is more than delivering a sinner from eternal punishment. It is a restoration to obedience as Christians who will live out that obedience in the law of God written upon their hearts and minds. Since Christ is Lord of history and his kingdom is expressed through his people, then the Lordship of Christ extends to every area of life and thought. Our mission, therefore, as the body of Christ in history, is to advance the crown rights of King Jesus in every realm. Check out the Chalcedon Foundation at www.chalcedonfoundation.edu.